0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Fraser Allen Institute. My name is Emma Congreve and I'm joined here today by my colleague Graeme Roy, the Director of the Institute, and our special guest, Sir Harry Burns, Professor of Global Public Health here at Strathclyde. So welcome, Harry, and we'll go straight to you, if that's okay. So given your current role and your former role as Chief Medical Officer of Scotland, this type of pandemic event will have been on your radar for some time, I imagine. Did you expect it to unfold quite as it has?
1: Um, This is different. Um, In the past, pandemics have been, well. the most recent big thing was uh, H1N1 influenza. But this is different from influenza. This is a different kind of organism entirely. Um, Similar to the SARS uh, outbreak of a few years ago, it really targets the lungs in a very vicious way, uh, much more uh, likely to cause serious illness and as we see death. So after swine flu, there would be um, exercises carried out um, to determine how we might respond to it, but I'm not sure anyone anticipated anything like this just quite so vicious and very infectious. Um, What we usually say is that the more serious an an organism is, the less likely it is to spread. Um, The fact that so many people have died shows that there's probably a very great number of people who've been infected, but haven't really had any significant symptoms. So it's a very infectious organism if it's killing so many people as it seems to be doing but that means there are a lot of people out there who can spread it so this is a bit odd this is a bit um, unusual and the question is is our response adequate
0: yeah and as part of the the reason why we've had such a, a big shutdown is, is because of how infectious this disease is. So is that quite uncommon in pandemics, that this, the economy and these, these social distancing rules come into play? Or yes. do we see that?
1: Yes, I don't, I don't recall anything like this, uh, certainly in my career in public health. Um, I think because the, the eastern countries like China, South Korea and so on, had been affected most by SARS and by more recently MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Um, I think they were possibly more prepared to shut things down, they saw the, the consequences of these kind of respiratory uh, viruses, whereas it maybe took us a bit longer. Um, and. Also, I think they were more ready to start testing. So WHO, their their instructions were test, 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 and isolate. And at present, we're not doing nearly enough tests. So we don't know how many people have been infected. We don't know how many people have been infected and have recovered. And. Therefore, we don't know how many people are immune and we don't know how long the immunity will last. Mm -hmm. So we're not quite sure what's going on. We should, I think, begin to hit a peak relatively soon um, because of the social distancing. Uh, And then I think we need to sit down and look very, very hard at how we prepare for another um, emergence of the illness either when we stop social distancing or when we, um, when we go into winter.
0: So there's a huge amount of uncertainty over this future path. Um, it probably means that we're going to have um, a shutdown of some sort of the economy for a long time. And Graeme, just coming to you, clearly the government is trying to do things to prop, thing, prop up the economy, but the damage will last a long time
2: yeah so, yeah, and one of the really interesting things is just how fast moving this has all been. so you even go back to just a month ago when the Chancellor was delivering his budget, and the talk back then was that uh, hope as much as possible that this would be temporary, that you'd essentially get a relatively short shutdown in the economy, and things would would bounce back and It's quite clear that we're not in that situation um, anymore, both in terms of the duration but also the scale of the potential you know, mothballing hibernation of our economy. And you know we've put some numbers out today where we're talking about anything up to the 20, 25% of our economy essentially um, on, on lockdown or mothball in some form just now. And an important thing to remember is with all of this, it's entirely appropriate, it's entirely the right thing to do. And actually what we're investing in at the moment in terms of our public health, purely from economic point of view, is absolutely crucial. So um, it's really important that we can continue to to essentially try and get through the next few days, weeks and months as safely as possible. That's the best thing that we can ultimately do um, for our economy. We'll come on, hopefully, to chat about what we might return back to and what lessons we might learn about how our economy works and operates uh, once we get through um, all of this. But one of the sad things, I guess, about all of this is that um, the scale of the the shock that we face at the moment means that you know we're now you know in a recession and that will be quite um, uh, deep uh, and damaging for many businesses despite the best efforts of both governments to try and prop up businesses and, and households at this particular point in time and I think one of the things that you know thinking about how it could have an impact and where we might need to be careful around the potential implications of it are things like you know shutting down your economy you might be able to do relatively quickly but it will take time for things to to come back on stream and and time for things to to bounce back there's some risks around the basic core infrastructure of our economy and how even when things kick up kick off again what might be the potential ability of our basic transport energy um, various mechanisms to get back functioning on a on a way that we'd normally recognise. I think from for from a household and business perspective, there's some really big issues there about the impact on households and the impact on businesses and the legacy effects that might have. And we know from past recessions, we know from past experiences that it's the most vulnerable in society that take the hit in instances like this, and that can have impact not just in the short term, but the legacy effects from that um, can be very long lasting. So there's lots of evidence, for example, to show that a, a bad economic experience for people who are young has long term effects on their ability to get employment in the future, but also has really big impacts on their wellbeing and health um, over time. So one of the things that we need to start to think about is what are the potential longer term implications for this and what might we do to try and mitigate some of the impacts but also actually learn from where we've got to and the type of economy we've created and how that leaves particularly people vulnerable and exposed um, at at times like this and I think one of the things we're asked quite a lot is okay when will this end and when will the economy bounce back um, to normal and I think there's a a number of different aspects to that firstly uh, we don't know Um, because we don't know how this pandemic will will pan out and it will be a gradual process and there will probably be setbacks to it as well. But also I think there's big questions about what we bounce back to and what a new normal looks like. Um, Some of that will be the nature of this crisis changing what normal looks like. But there's also, I think, big questions for us as a society and policymakers about what type of normal we're... We're 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 wanting to move back to, and the classic example again that we use at the moment is the irony of jobs that were classified as being low value and non-essential just a few months ago, now being seen as being the vital jobs that keep this economy going and are getting us through the crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't be lost. That irony shouldn't be lost in any of us uh, in mm-hmm. this context. So there's big questions and all of that. I think for all of us.
0: Yeah, and. We also know that this crisis and what's happened to the economy will affect uh, different households in very different ways. I mean, some people will see, you know, be able to work from home. Their organisations will still keep going. Their incomes might not be affected too much. But some sectors will see um, huge long-term um, impacts, and and the sectors that are very much on the front line of this of this economic shutdown, um, so hospitality, tourism. And uh, non-food retail, they are predominantly um, filled with with low paid workers. So we do very much need to to consider those longer term impacts on those households. And and we know, obviously, Harry, that people in sort of lower income households, you know, that there is a link between low income, uh, particularly persistent low income and poor health outcomes. So, I mean, obviously, we know that we had to act very quickly and to, to try and stem the health impacts of this crisis, but there are health implications of shutting down the economy too.
1: Yeah, interesting, I'm using that term new normal. Um, That came up in a discussion I was having yesterday with a a colleague in public health. Um, So people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale have a double whammy because their healthy life expectancy is less at the moment, which means there are more people at the lower end of the social scale with um, conditions, chronic conditions, that make it more likely that if they get coronavirus, they're going to at least go into intensive care and probably die. So that will widen, um, widen inequalities, And then afterwards, if jobs are lost, if more people are plunged into poverty and you get a widening of the economic um, uh, differentials in society, then, as Graham says, the younger people will struggle. Uh, So we would expect, if we were just going to go back to what was normal, a widening in health inequalities. But the conversation I was having yesterday suggested that we should try and pursue a new normal. Um, One of the things that we've talked about for a while in Scotland is the idea of inclusive growth. And I've, not being an economist, I've been trying to think about inclusive growth as a different economic model. In fact, as I've been reading around this, it seems to me that the present economic model of a market-based economy has actually been pretty successful over the years. It's allowed innovation, it's allowed growth and so on. The thing that we need to pursue is inclusivity rather than a different economic model. And what I'm seeing, I, mean, I was out for a cycle this morning and usually I go out for a run or a walk or whatever. And I'm seeing, and I live out in the country, so um, the social distancing isn't a problem, but, Usually I encounter a number of other people out walking the dogs and so on. And there's always a widening gap between us as we pass. And there's always a smile and a hello and a quip or some description. And it seems to me that society is feeling more cohesive. The people that you meet out there were sharing a kind of challenge and social cohesion is a very powerful driver of well-being and there's there are big studies that have measured social cohesion and people who have a number of friends who feel comfortable and so on in their in their communities are far more likely to survive longer than people who don't so i wonder if what we shouldn't be pursuing as part of our return to normal is this new normal where we are more actively engaged in looking after each other. We're more actively respectful of people who do jobs that in the past have been seen as very menial and very unskilled and so on. Actually, what this has shown us is that they are immensely important. And I would want, I think, us to try and develop a narrative that says, if we are going to get inclusive growth we have to work hard to include everyone in the development of economic recovery yeah. and success. Yeah. Quite how we do that that's up to these experts um, but that that's how it feels to me is the way forward for this.
0: Yeah and I think there'll be a greater kind of sense of feeling that people who are forced into doing very precarious um jobs without that kind of security i think many more people now will understand the impact that that has on your kind of sense of self and your security so i think there may be a, a shift in people thinking that they 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 no longer think that is actually how the economy should operate for people yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so so going back to you Graham. i mean you've talked a little bit about um what you think the big questions for the future are but um do you want to just talk a bit more about what we at the Fraser are are kind of thinking about in 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 the next few weeks and months and probably years no doubt
2: yeah so there's probably in looking forward there's probably there's probably three stages to all of this which I think are are helpful to to look at and of course the the morph into one another as you as you um, as you start to think about them but I think there's a stage which is where we are at the moment which is how can we get through the immediate public health emergency as safely as possible and how can we support businesses and households and individuals to get through that and some of that's about what we can do about the various schemes and mechanisms that are in place and make sure that they have the impact that um, we, we we hope they will and we've got a survey out at the moment looking at businesses in Scotland and their response to um, you know what they think the schemes are designed to do but also how easy they are to access to them and that's really interesting some of the results that we're getting back from that. I think the second stage then is well at some point touch wood and we'll all get through this um, safely is it how do you then start to kickstart your economy again and and as i mentioned before that's not easy it's not something that you can just turn on turn on and and off so there's got to be some quite careful planning about how we start to gradually wind up day-to-day activity um, and to back to some form of 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 stability some form of normal once again there and of course the public health priority has got to cover all of that but thinking through things like well how do you start to relax social distancing what businesses can potentially start up on a maybe a partial scale in the short term to get things going again how do you start to rebuild supply chains and core economic infrastructure that can help support all of that and how do you then target support and um, at the businesses and individuals that will need it the most and how do you move through to the recovery phase and you mentioned sectors where there's some really important questions in there as well. But there's also a regional dimension to all of this too. So we know that particular remote rural parts of the country where I've seen essentially their core activity and tourism and things cut off, <clears throat> probably cut off for the best part of a year. So how, how you can help support them through all of that will be absolutely crucial. And I think the stuff that Harry's turn, talked about gets into the really fascinating stuff around the longer term so once we do come back to some form of normality there's some really big questions in there about what the future structure of all that looks like and that's things that we are really interesting looking at so things like you know what's the underlying structure of our economy um, at, at the end of all of this and does it work for everybody or does it just continue to work for for some people and, and, and not for the, for others what might be the implications for some of our key sectors in Scotland so we know that some sectors disproportionately impacted in others so oil and gas being a classic example of that a double whammy in terms of the low oil price but also in terms of challenges around how you operate uh, an industry like that through times like this in terms of furling so there's some big questions and in all of that big questions that I mentioned around how do we target the legacy effects of this so if we know that people are going to be more impacted by the uncertainty and challenge in the economic environment? How do we make sure we don't, we learn the lessons from the past about targeting support so we can avoid people falling into really significant long-term economic and and uh, wider, wider hardships? Some really big questions, I think, for sectors like our own um, and things like retail about the world of flexible working and how you access things online. Some really interesting questions there about the future of types of business models and what things might need to change in all of that i mean harry talked we talked a bit at the start about preparedness for risks i think one of the things which i'm really interested in and we've written something about this already is um you know just how do we reflect on all of this about how our economy is has been ready or has helped respond to any risk so we've got a pandemic here but we know there's lots of other risks on government and global risk registers from cyber security through to climate change and for example so at, you know how how do how do we start to take these risks seriously what type of response do we build for that and um, but also big questions about how does our economy help or hinder our response to global shocks and global risks like this so um, our model uh, for the economy built in long global supply chains you know that's not great when you need to access basic supplies very very quickly we've prioritized services and advanced manufacturing as an economy over years but when you need your core basic manufacturing whether that to produce plastic bottles for hand sanitizers whether that be to produce PPE for health workers and care workers you need a core manufacturing base that lets you do that and um, so big questions about the structure of our economy and whether that works in a way which helps us um, combat any of the the big risks that we potentially face whatever they are uh, into the future and we've touched on I guess the final bit which is the bit there about what type of economy and society do we move back to so questions about the role of the state and the balance between the state and the private sector and the role of the welfare system and social security and questions there about well if we're able to pay people slightly more in universal credit now why are we not prepared to do that more generally and what type of jobs do we value big questions about the the security and the safety net for people the role of the gig economy so i think there's some really big questions in all of that as, as harry was saying about if we if we move to a, a new normal how can we potentially shape that new normal
0: yeah, um, precisely. yeah because it's not it's not necessarily going to happen without some some big thoughts and some big kind of questions that policymakers are willing to ask um, you know, after the financial crisis, I mean, it didn't quite go back to exactly how it had been before. But you know, did we learn the lessons from that as as an economy? Um, I think there's a question mark over whether that is the case in in some parts of the financial sector, for example. So, thinking forwards, Harry, I mean, what would be the big um, the big kind of questions that you would want policymakers to be asking, and indeed finding the answers to when thinking about how to move towards a new normal that actually has the interests of of um, of long term health and well being as as part of the core.
2: I think. I
1: mean, these big questions that Graham's just uh, laid out. Yeah, we've got to get an answer to that. But it seems to me that we begin from the bottom up. Um, it's occurred to me, reading about the way in which inclusivity has developed in some regions and communities, particularly in the US where places like Detroit and so on, the car industry's gone, the rust belt, steel stuff and so on is gone. Places that have recovered, place is very important. Um, the people feel an affinity, to a place and build up a kind of social cohesion around that place. And it seems to me that to support the development of economic progress in these places, there needs to be a specific policy around funding and supporting new ideas. Um, impact investment. The idea that people will invest in a particular idea in order to make profit, fine, but impact investment is all about supporting social benefit as well as making a level of profit. And and I think we need to be thinking a lot more along those lines.
0: And does this build into your kind of your um, thoughts around cohesive communities as well. Yeah, so,
1: absolutely.
0: yeah, so economy is being a bit more rooted with the community that, that it serves. Yeah,
1: um, you know, the family businesses that you've seen uh, grow up and uh, survive and so on and and remain local employers and so on, the money that they make is not being extracted by um, by shareholders in living in Monte Carlo or whatever you know it's a family it employs local people the the profit more more of the profit stays within the community than it yeah. would if it was just being sucked out the important thing is to encourage innovation locally to support it to allow it to grow and there is i mean i've been part of an advisory group to an international foundation that does impact investing. And most of their impact investing is in low-income countries. But you know, we've got low-income areas mm. in Scotland that really need that kind of investing um, as well. So if we had policymakers specifically focusing on these areas and saying, yeah, the East East Glasgow and uh, parts of Dundee and so on. We know really well, we characterise multiple deprivation really accurately in Scotland. We know where it is, we know who's living in those areas and so on. If we had a deliberate policy that we set out to involve those people in design and development of new ideas, then that would have a significant Mm. impact. So 10 years ago, Sir Michael Marmot published a review of health inequalities in England. And just a few weeks ago, just before lockdown, in fact, we all went to a meeting in London where 10 years after the Marmot review, people came along and said, what's changed? And it was very depressing. Because speaker after speaker said, 10 years ago, we asked the government to do X, Y, and Z. 10 years on, things are actually worse. They haven't done what we said. Well, I I don't think government can make the change happen. Government can support people to make the change happen. And that I think is the way to do this, get people fired up and allow government to support them financially and so on.
0: And do you think one of the outcomes of this crisis might be that it's a kind of a shock to the system um that because um normal no longer exists that that people will start to think about actually um you know if what we've just been through can happen and you know and government can respond in this way and communities can respond in this way perhaps that that does give us a, a different, it's not a completely different model but a, a different way of doing things going forward
1: I I hope we don't go back to the way it was, because the way it was isn't by any means the way it should be. So I hope this is a shock to the system that provokes people into thinking differently. Um, You know, I have to say that the way in which the Conservative government has responded to the lockdown in supporting people who suddenly are without means of support, has rather surprised me. I think it's been much more, you know, I'm sure it's not perfect, but it's been very, very helpful in uh, many cases. So I hope that's a sign that politically we all get together and work out how to support people across the system, across the economic divide. And if we do so, Then the whole of society will benefit.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, it wouldn't just be doing this for the sake of doing it, it would be because the longer term benefits from it could be in terms of better health, um, long term, and better preparedness for for, um, crises like these. I
1: I would say we should do it for the sake of doing it because it's the right thing to do. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, economically, the country would be better off, I suspect. And certainly, in terms, there would be, you would see. families being more cohesive, children being more engaged at school, more likely to get qualifications, more likely to get jobs. You will see fewer young people getting involved in crime and suicide and, you know, this kind of thing. So yeah, society would be much better off if we responded in this way.
0: So Graham, does that all sound too good to be true or is is this the kind of shock to the system and a new normal that we might moving towards
2: i think that the proof will be in the pudding won't it and to see what what ultimately comes um from this in time but you know this is this is genuinely unprecedented and and we're going to have a very large fiscal cost at the end of this as well so you know we need to genuinely think about you know what lessons do we take from this and how do we think about you know developing an economy that is robust more coherent uh, and and stronger in, in in the long run and and in many ways in in many ways it felt as though we were starting to get towards those types of conversations so we've had the conversation in Scotland now for a good few years about inclusive growth there's questions about obviously how far we've made, made, made some progress on that but there's very clear that we've made some progress and there's an overall conversation that's much more nuanced and developed I think than in than, than in other places. The debate around climate change, again, becoming much more to the fore, and individuals being much more aware about the risk of changes in the environment and how that is closely linked to the economy in both directions. And if we're starting now to be able to have a much better and more informed conversation about the links between public health and the economy in both directions, then and I think we will have made significant progress. It's a shame that we obviously have to have something like this in order for us to start, you know, for that having to resonate at the highest levels um, of, of policy making across countries. But, you know, it, it's something I think to to not lose sight of as things start to, to pick up again. As I mentioned, there's a big, you know, a big challenge for policymakers. We'll just be getting through the next few weeks and months. There'll then be a big challenge about getting our economy up and running again. The risk is that we can't lose sight of that of the third part, which we've been speaking about here, which is about, OK, what, how can we shape that new normal that we want to return to?
0: OK, well, thank you both. That's been a really interesting conversation. Um, and thank you also to James, who's been invaluable on our tech support for these podcasts. Um, and I do hope you will join us again. Thank you.